You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. This episode is a recording of the Canadian launch of the Global Terrorism Index, hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies and the Institute for Economics and Peace. Hello, everybody. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia University. And we're really pleased today to welcome you to the Canada launch of the Global Terrorism Index, an initiative of the Institute for Economics and Peace, an important think tank. Um, we are very pleased to partner with uh, IEP, the Institute for Economics and Peace, for the second year in a row. Uh, last year, we were able to launch uh, in the post uh, pre-COVID world. We were able to launch uh, the Global Terrorism Report at the Canadian Parliament, uh, as well as uh, do an event at the University of Ottawa with MIGS Digital Fellow Phil Gursky. Um, this year, that wasn't possible, but we're really pleased actually to do this in a virtual format. We could bring in other speakers that couldn't normally travel to one spot. So we're really pleased uh, to welcome you all today. Um, we have a very fascinating group of people that are going to give us their perspectives on global terrorism, what the trends mean, and the importance of this report. Um, so let, I'd like to introduce our speakers now. Our first speaker will be Michael Collins. He's Executive Director of the Americas for the Institute for Economics and Peace. Uh, Michael will present the main findings of the report. Um, following Michael's uh, uh, comments, we're going to be joined by Mubin Chaik. Uh, Mubin is a professor of public safety uh, at Seneca College in the Toronto area, and he's a former security uh, intelligence and counterterrorism operative. Uh, great to have you with us, Mubin. Uh, follow, following Mubin, we'll have Mia Bloom. Uh, Mia, who we found out is a Canadian citizen. We didn't know that before. Uh, she's a fellow at International Security Program at the New America Foundation. Great to have you with us, Mia. And last but not least, we have uh, Michelle Shepard. Uh, she's a journalist and filmmaker. She's traveled to many of the countries that are mentioned in the Global Terrorism Index and has made films and done reporting on the human rights side of counterterrorism operations. So we're really pleased to have you all join us. Um, and uh, I think it'll be a fascinating event to kind of help inform Canadians. We have Canadian scholars on this call. We have government officials um, to really kind of also let Canadians and decision makers know what's happening out there and how it relates to our domestic uh, security policies and our, and our foreign policy. Um, we recently, um, uh, one of the things about the report was mentioned about Mali and the Sahel, which has become a serious security issue. And Canadians were had a short-lived peacekeeping operation uh, in Mali, but we're not there anymore. So further ado, I'd like to pass uh, the floor to Michael and have him uh, talk about uh, the findings of this year's Global Terrorism Index. Michael? So yes, thank you very, thank you very much. Um, so IEP, very quickly, uh, we're a non-profit, uh, non-partisan research institute uh, dedicated primarily to the quantitative study of uh, peace. Uh, our, our aim is to sort of shift the world's focus to peace as a positive, tangible, and achievable measure of human well-being and progress. And we produce a variety of, of reports. One of our flagship reports is the Global uh, Peace Index. Um, and from that, a subset of, of, of other reports, including Positive Peace Index, the Global Terrorism Index that you see here today, and then more uh, sort of subnational or thematic reports, such as the Mexico Peace Index and the COVID-19 and Peace uh, report as well. Uh, thankfully, over the years, uh, our work has been um, very well received and has consulted um, uh, frequently, frequently by multilateral organizations and universities around the world. Uh, this is not so so much a, a sort of a, a promotional uh, statement, just just more to kind of sort of say that we hope that this helps uh, you feel comfortable using our research in the future. And thanks to the fact that it's been well received, it's enabled us to open up a variety of international offices around the world. So for those of you uh, joining outside of, of Canada or the US, hopefully we do have an office in your particular time zone as well. So, with regards to what the, uh, the uh, GTI is, well, it's a report, it's uh, an annual report that we produce, it's now in its eighth year, and what it does essentially is it ranks 163 countries, that's about 99.7% of the world's population, according to the impact of terrorism. Um, this uh, is just one of the 23 indicators that we use for the Global Peace Index, and the methodology is developed by, by IEP, um, and it starts by using data sourced from the uh, Start Global Terrorism database, one of the most, uh, the most comprehensive um, uh, terrorism database that we've been able to to, uh, to sort. So 
Um, in order to be able to establish the, the impact of terrorism around the world, the methodology broadly that we follow is we start with that particular data, and then we do a weighting um, of the different uh, incidents, the injuries, the deaths, the property damage. And then we take that from the last five years. This is sort of a recognition, if you will, of the long-term impact um, that terrorist uh, incidents and deaths has on an individual society. Then we go sort of a, through a process of, of what we call here logarithmic banding, which takes into account the different sort of sizes and characteristics of countries to be able to make them more comparable. And then that and that, along with a variety of other socioeconomic indicators that we have access to, go into the global uh, terrorism index, which this year is the 2020. So let's jump straight into uh, some of the results. And the key findings are pretty much kind of sort of comprised in, into three. Uh, the first one, um, and the nice one out of all of them, I suppose, is that uh, the deaths from terrorism have fallen for the fifth consecutive year, uh, about 15% uh, decrease since 2018. Um, and they've also fallen in the, in the four countries with the most deaths, so that's uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria, and Syria. The second key finding, if you will, is that sort of the core of, of ISIS uh, in Iraq and Syria continues to uh, um, diminish. Uh, it's the first year where there's been uh, less than a thousand fatalities. Um, but we've also sort of seen a, a shift uh, in the center of gravity towards sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, seven of the seven, uh, seven of the ten largest increases in terrorism deaths have been in that particular region. And ISIS or ISIL is, is far from a spent force. Uh, through its affiliates and provinces, it launched attacks in 27 countries last year. And then the third key uh, finding, which we'll spend a tiny bit more uh, time today on also, uh, is the increase in far-right terrorism, which has increased significantly in the last five years, um, albeit from a low base. In other words, it still represents a tiny, tiny fraction, in, in fact, 0.5% of all terrorism deaths worldwide. So it needs to be placed in perspective, but that trend is um, concerning. So we're going to jump into these in a bit more detail. Um, just before we do, though, this is sort of a global mud map of uh, the impact of terrorism uh, worldwide. It's actually available um, in interactive format on our website. You can click on any individual country and it will kind of sort of give you a readout of the indicators. Um, overall, we see that 103 uh, countries record an improvement in their GTI score and that the green countries that you see here are countries that haven't had a terrorist attack for the past five years. There's 33 countries. Um, and that means that there are 130 countries in which there has been a terrorist attack. So in terms of the countries most uh, impacted by uh, terrorism, all of these practically are countries that are in conflict. And this is sort of a correlation that we're going to be seeing again and again um, today, perhaps with the exception of, of India that has sort of more of a, a regional form of uh, conflict. Most of the uh, the impact has decreased over time. Uh, the only countries that have, have seen an increase in impact is uh, the um, is uh, DRC and Yemen. Uh, Philippines is the only sort of country that is that is sort of out of these geographical areas in southern East um, Asia. So we see that uh, terrorism has been been downwards, like I mentioned before. Um, the peak of it was in in 2014, and this is a comparison just between 2018 and 2019. Um, as we see, you know, overall terrorism is concentrated in a very small amount of uh, countries. This one in particular is for the five countries with, with the most deaths. Afghanistan accounts for over 40% of all terrorism deaths, at least in 2019. But as you can see, it's, it's decreased significantly from 2018. In fact, Burkina Faso and Mali are the only two um, in which uh, terrorism deaths have increased. So if we now look at it sort of into in the top 10 countries, we see that they account for 80%. Uh, of all terrorist deaths in the world. In fact, Afghanistan and, and Nigeria account for uh, 50. Now, there are 63 uh, countries that have had at least one terrorism uh, death from terrorism in 2019. That's actually down from 2018. If we have a look in the decreases in, in terrorism, we've seen a 22% uh, decrease um, in, in Afghanistan. That's the first time in three years. Um, we've seen a decrease um, in deaths in Nigeria. That's that's um, deaths from Boko Haram in Nigeria have actually uh, increased. This is a decrease from um, uh, extremists related to sort of the pastoralist uh, herder conflicts um, in that area, and then a decrease in uh, in Iraq and Syria, uh, still related to to the demise of the caliphate. 
this is uh, increases in deaths from terrorism uh, last year. Seven of the ten, and I, I mentioned it briefly before, seven of the ten uh, countries with the most increases are in sub-Saharan um, Africa. Uh, in Burkina Faso, it raised rise nearly six-fold, 590%. Um, percent. Um, and what we do see here is we see Sri Lanka, and then on the right-hand side we see New Zealand, uh, which are you know a couple of, of outliers, um, but very significant events there in 2019, so incorporated in here. So we also look at the economic impact of, of terrorism, and the way that we sort of go about that is we take into account direct costs. Um, so so you know hospitalizations, funerals, uh, cleanup, uh, infrastructure damage. Um, we then add indirect costs such as the, the lost productivity from life lost, and then also something that we call the multiplier effect, which is the sort of lost opportunity of not being able to take all that money and invest it in something productive. Um, but we also feel this is actually a very conservative measure because we really can't take into account sort of decreases in tourism, decreases in, in, in business investment, for example, which, which we believe to be um, significant. Um, so this is sort of a, a, a brief breakdown of the impact of terrorism per country as percentage of, of GDP. As a whole, we've seen that the overall economic impact of terrorism has decreased by 25%. Uh, and this is actually the fifth consecutive year of decline. So if we look at sort of some of the longer term uh, trends in terrorism, uh, what we see is that terrorism uh, is significantly higher than it was 10 years ago and over two times higher than it was 20 years ago. We see sort of here on the, the right hand side this mountain, if you will, which is uh, sort of representative of the rise and fall uh, of, of ISIS um, and Boko Haram. Um, and, and I'd kind of sort of like to draw your attention to this smaller sliver here on of, of blue, and I'm not sure if you can see my mouse, um, here on the, the um, uh, upper right-hand side, which corresponds to Europe and North America. That really kind of sort of puts in perspective, um, you know, the number of terrorist attacks and incidents that we have here compared to, um, compared to the rest of the world. This is a breakout of the, the deadliest terrorist uh, groups, which is uh, essentially the Taliban, uh, Boko, uh, Boko Haram, ISIL, and Al-Shabaab. Uh, those four groups are responsible for uh, more than half of the total deaths in 2019. On the right-hand side, we kind of sort of see um, you know, the progress of, of the Taliban since the, the, the start of the global war on, on terror. We've seen sort of a small decrease recently, which is positive, but TBD where that will go, and then a spectacular rise and fall of ISIL. So um, I mentioned briefly, you know, on the close correlation between um, uh, conflict and terrorism. So I'd just like to kind of sort of draw your attention to, to these, these graphs. And um, as we can see, and, and we need to pay attention to the different scales here so as not to confuse, um, so as not to lead to confusion. Um, but uh, terrorism, for the most part, uh, happens in countries with high levels of, of conflict. But we are seeing increasing um, uh, a link or correlation between terrorism and what we call sort of this minor armed conflict. And this is kind of representative also of the changing nature of, of warfare that we see through our, bro our broader um, research. You know, there's, there's less um, very large scale inter-country um, conflicts and large theaters of war, but are sprouting up a variety of more regional, smaller, um, but equally intense conflicts around the world. And, and um, if we were to sort of lump all of this together and overlay it with conflict in the world, it would track practically identically. In fact, I think there's a chart that does that in the report. So let's talk about the shifting landscape. Uh, and this is in reference to uh, a geographical uh, landscape. Um, you know, in this chart, we can sort of see um, perhaps one of the reasons why why the MENA region is often talked about as sort of a hotbed of, of um, terrorism, but we also see in the last two or three years how it's been uh, overtaken by uh, by attacks and incidents in uh, South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And here we can kind of sort of see that uh, essentially again, but in, in a different chart uh, format. We see a significant increase over the last um, 10 years uh, in all three of these regions. In fact, the last decade has been the, 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 the most, the, the deadliest on record. And once again, note the difference between these three regions and the rest of the world. If you take these three regions out, you actually see a decrease in terrorism. And then this is a sort of a, a trend of, of ITIL, uh, ISIL, excuse me, ISIS-related uh, terrorism uh, deaths. And what we see is what I referenced before, the rise and fall of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. 
Um, but we see the, the affiliates and the uh, provinces here essentially still operating uh, un, unimpeded. So, uh, you know, provinces would be um, different uh, terrorist groups or associations that have more of a sort of a formal link to, to ISIS that share some of sort of the logistical uh, or hierarchical structures. Um, and affiliates would be sort of more independent groups uh, that pledge allegiance to, to ISIL. And then if we kind of sort of overlay all of that information here, both in terms of the uh, the uh, ISIS-related terrorism deaths and the region, we sort of see that physically, that that shift um, between the MENA region and then moving uh, ISIS, uh, ISIS moving to sub-Saharan Africa uh, in, in a variety of different forms, or I should say primarily through affiliates and provinces. Um, we've just completed some research and issued a report called the Ecological Threat Register, which looks at uh, resource scarcity um, and countries' underlying level of resilience. Um, and it's it's had some pretty interesting results. Um, you know, the country with the most ecological threats, for example, turns out to be Afghanistan. Uh, the countries with the most water-related uh, conflicts turn out to be Iraq and, and Yemen. And as you can see in this particular uh, chart here, the six countries with the, the, the greatest uh, increase in terrorism are also the ones with 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 the you know uh, medium to high ecological threat and the ones with the um, uh, the highest projected population growth um, and something that um, somebody noted the other day just to put that in a bit of perspective um, there are only 17 countries in the world that are that are projected to double their population in the next 30 years okay so uh, section five uh, far right terrorism and uh, political uh, Violence, you know, what we see for the most part, um, and and this is this is not specific to to far right, but we do do sort of uh, through the GTD a classification of of terrorist incidents through uh, as religious, political, or national and and separatist. We do see as a trend that religious uh, uh, religiously related incidents have been significantly more deadly, um, but politically uh, motivated terrorism has been a lot more common. Um, in fact, we see that since 2002, um, that has that has been uh, the the case, um, and there's been at least 35 uh, far-right terrorist attacks uh, every year for the past five years, and they're rising in number and in lethality as well. Uh, this is more specific to uh, far-right uh, incidents. Um, you know, there was only sort of one reported incident here in 2010, and then you see this significant, significant rise uh, over the last 10 years. And this is kind of sort of that trend that we were referring to um, here. And uh, I just kind of sort of very quickly uh, noted this uh, this attack here because it does kind of sort of make make you 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 think, uh, especially in sort of the area uh, the uh, era of YouTube influencers, how notoriety and how kind of sort of the uh, the media potentially contribute or, or you know the, the the system that we've created can contribute to the replication of, of, of attacks I, i'm not qualified to talk about this but i'd love to hear um from the experiences opinions of our panelists today um one of the things that that, that i think is is quite interesting is that you know this this rise that we're seeing in terrorism is is pretty parallel to the rise in civil unrest that we're seeing in what we would call the the west right in uh, europe uh northern america and oceania um, primarily. And that uh, in turn is actually something that we've kind of sort of been tracking through other forms of research including the Positive Peace Index um, and is corresponding to a deterioration um, in what we call the attitudes domain. So things related to group grievances, quality of information, uh, fractionalized elites, crackdowns on, on, on the press and even equitable distribution of resources. Um, if we um, break out the distribution of far-right incidents per, per country, we see that the United States has has been um, has been affected most of all. And interestingly, the United States has actually dropped in the positive peace index uh, 10, 10, 10 places and has been dropping in levels of positive peace for the last uh, 12 years. Uh, we don't have uh, the the uh, a significant number of, of incidents registered in, in Canada, although it does feature in the, uh, the death chart here on the right-hand side. We also have New Zealand and Norway that one would sort of consider um, outliers in this particular case. And then lastly, um, I'd just like to sort of very quickly touch on systems and, and terrorism. We've uh, started to combine uh, streams of, of research and looking into sort of the correlations with, with terrorism. Uh, this is preliminary uh, work, which um, I think sort of confirms some of the things that are perhaps 
um, intuitive, but but as we progress, we'd like to sort of add more detail to this. And and the first one is the strong uh, correlation um, between conflict and and terrorism. Um, now it's it's important to sort of highlight that terrorism can be both the the, the cause um, and the outcome of of conflict. Um, and you know there is a lot to be said for for stopping a particular violent conflict as a way of of stopping uh, terrorism too. Uh, but we shouldn't sort of necessarily cause um, you know confuse that confuse causality with um, correlation. Um, you know it's not necessarily one that causes the the other, rather that they are symptomatic of the the same thing. So. This broader picture, if you will, is what we're hoping to look at in, in more detail and add uh, further layer to, uh, layers to as we go along. So I'm just going to share one slide, which I, I sort of hope will, will tempt you to perhaps look at this section of, of the report. Um, this one relates to, to group grievances. And what we see is that the grievances and, and religious and, and ethnic uh, tensions essentially uh, appear to be more associated with, with terrorism in developing countries than they do. Um, in advanced economies, um, and the same is true for measures of, of prosperity and factionalized violence as well. Um, in contrast, though, physical violence um, and shares, of, shares of, uh, that are not in education, training, uh, or employment um, are more stati uh, statistically correlated uh, with terrorism in advanced economies. Um, the, the deficient protection of human rights is associated with terrorism uh, in nations of essentially all stages of uh, development. So there are there are 13 different socioeconomic indicators um, that we've analyzed in in the report, um, and we've kind of sort of hope that this speaks to to the the larger need to to help and reinforce the attitudes, institutions, and structures that that create and sustain peace more broadly. Um, I, I'm not sure how I'm I'm doing um, uh, for time. I, I'm pretty much done. Uh, just to include that that right at the end of the report, there's sort of a case study of the the long-term impact of of terrorism on, on, on systems. Um, and, and we'd of course welcome you to, to read that. And, and I was just looking at it today because I was you know, wondering if there were gonna be any questions on it. Uh, so I haven't done any formal formal thing, but it's an analysis of 9-11, um, of, uh, right? And the potential impact that it's had on, on sort of the, the US system, if you will, since, since then. I think it's particularly sort of fa uh, uh, fascinating because we do see close correlations with uh, posterior, um, higher levels of, of conflict, um, uh, higher regulations, you know, related to security and use of the internet, um, deterioration in, in, in human rights protection, uh, deteriorations in metrics re related to uh, freedom from torture. Um, there's been uh, less opportunity for courts to be able to review um, executive or the, administra the administration's decisions. Um, there's been a general deterioration in law, uh, law and order as well. Um, uh, but interestingly, there's been little or no impact in, in GDP and unemployment. And, you know, that's one particular case study. But I imagine, um, and perhaps our panelists will be able to comment on this uh, a lot further, this would be uh, similar in, in any country or context that we, uh, that we looked at. So that concludes the, uh, the, the presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, very detailed um, presentation. And it gives us a view of what countries are, are suffering or, or where some of the, this political violence is moving. Um, very fascinating. So I'd now like to ask, I muted Michael's um, uh, microphone, but I'd like to ask Mubin now to um, to take the floor. And I know you have, Mubin, some slides you'd like to share. Yes, uh, thank you for having me, Kyle and uh, company, everyone. I'm glad to be with you guys as usual. Um, let me just get these slides up and I will hit it. So uh, what I wanted to cover, I, I'm not going to spend too much time, and, and the previous presentation was great in terms of the statistics that they were providing. I just want to give a, a quick briefing on what I'm going to cover here. It's just, a, I'm going to call it an ISIS brief. I'm going to mention some comments about uh, what's happening in India with the Hindutva, of course, far right, uh, what I'm calling manotoxicity, uh, of course, playing off of manosphere and whatnot, and then just uh, some closing um, thoughts at the end. You know, in 2012, uh, when I got onto social media, I got into social media in 2010 uh, and really by 2012 started to see the rise of ISIS in real time um, and started to engage and chat with ISIS members online. So this is just some of the stuff that they were putting out. Some of the stuff uh, probably a lot of you have seen because it's almost old news, quote unquote. Uh, but here is uh, you know, a statement from them about jihad. It has different forms. The important thing here is that you don't uh, abandon your place in it. So whether you're tech support or uh, you were doing the uh, media operations or you're a trigger person, 
they're basically telling you there's a place for you. Now, I, I always make it a point to define jihad as the Islamic war tradition with rules of engagement. Uh, jihad is the Islamic war tradition with rules of engagement. So terrorism is to jihad what war crimes are to ROEs. Okay. Uh, very quickly, just a couple of slides here, uh, a couple of uh, excerpts from uh, from Twitter, actually, uh, you know, them understanding that uh, it's not the number of people that are killed. It's the number of people watching terrorism as theater. Uh, for those of you with a quick eye here, you'll notice here it's HSM, press office, and that's Harakat al-Shabaab al-Mujahideen. So why is a Shabaab account using an ISIS flag? Well, this was in the beginning when ISIS was doing its, you know, policy of a hostile takeover of Al-Qaeda affiliates, and this was an attempt to do that. American Jihad Watch is a friend of ours. I think he's watching. I hope he's watching. Uh, but basically, it was, um, you know, these actors embracing the use of social media uh, to put their messaging out. You know, there were also other ways in which they did their recruiting. So Ask.fm was a platform on which they could ask, you know, what kind of phone should I bring? Uh, can I bring a lot of clothes? Uh, or if I join ISIS, can I can I fight right away? And they would answer you. People who were there, you can see from the moniker here, uh, Abu Dujana Britani was actually a pretty popular name. A few people used it. But you can see here, right? Weapon is free. Ammo is free. If you want to come, you know, come on down. We have we have a place for you. Then, uh, of course, uh, while I was watching all this stuff, there was all these food pictures that were being posted. Uh, and so here's Magnus Ranstorp, of course, um, you know, very well-known expert of ours, uh, posting a, of a Swedish foreign fighter with their Swedish gummy bears. Okay. Or in the case of, you know, uh, this Abu Turab al-Muhajir is a Canadian or was a Canadian. Um, and this is, remember the days of five-star jihad when they were trying to encourage young people to come from the West. And especially if you're coming from the UK and you love your kebabs, you know, you want to be told that when you get to Syria, yeah, you're going to have kebabs too, right? Everything is here for you. So just some of the food pictures that were out there. But of course, you know, it, it took a, uh, I mean, there are also um, other um, recruiting stuff that they're posting. So of course, how to kill people, right? What kind of knife you should use. Uh, how to conduct truck attacks, what kind of truck you should use, how you should get the truck, right? So these were also uh, regular components of their recruiting. Uh, some of their posters that they used to make. So if you see here, uh, we hear and we obey. It's actually an excerpt from the Quran, Samirna uh, Walta'ana. But if you notice the poster, it's for the game Call of Duty, because this is our Call of Duty, and we respawn in Jannah, right? So this was the kind of the ways that they. They framed these things for themselves. Now, just coming quickly into counter-messaging, uh, I love this Sheikh, Muhammad al-Yaqubi. Uh, he's a living descend descendant of the Prophet, alayhi salam. And I like his uh, English message here, right? Let's not, uh, you know, ISIS wants to provoke this clash of civilizations. And they wrote to this effect. They wanted people, they want Western governments to clash with their Muslim populations and vice versa. Uh, it's a trap, don't fall into it. If you just jump on the on the right there, where he gives basically a fatwa, fatwa mufassala, uh, a clear fatwa, discerning fatwa, fi ithbati, on the certainty, anna da'isha khawarij, that da'ish are khawarij. And khawarij is the classical Islamic term for uh, rebels or terrorists, basically. Da'ish, of course, is the acronym that we use. wajib, And fighting them is obligatory. And he's got a wonderful, well, it's a little booklet. This is an earlier version, Refuting ISIS. Uh, rebuttal of its ideological foundation. And and I think this is, it's important to note that uh, ISIS is, uh, you know, one of the most common um, uh, descriptions of ISIS is that they would quote the Quran, but it would not go beyond their throats. Another descriptor of the Khawarij is that they were hyper worshippers. They were very, you know, extreme in their worshipping. In fact, the Prophet, alayhi salam, in a sound hadith said to his companions that if you saw their prayer and their fasting, you would belittle your own worship. So the fact that they are hyper-religious, they use the Quran, this is something that the Islamic sources have already said about the Khawarij. So I mentioned this because when people said, oh, ISIS appeals to the Quran, therefore ISIS is Islamic, I would push back against that notion. Uh, just to some quick things, uh, I'm, and this is the one that I spend the longest time on because I'm obsessed with it. Uh, there are many authentic narrations concerning killing the Khawarij. And basically what I'm showing here is that the Islamic sources castigate and condemn these people, uh, you know, by saying things like they are the most evil of creation. 
they are the dogs of hellfire. No offense to dogs. Uh, just last few slides. Here is another sound hadith. The Prophet, peace be upon him, is saying that almost like a wave theory of terrorism, he's saying that they will appear again and again. And every time they appear, they will be cut off until from their last remnants. And if I can get a little preachy preachy here, until from their last remnants, the Antichrist shall emerge. And, you know, as Muslims, we believe in Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, uh, who is alive in heaven, who will return at another time. Uh, and before his appearance will be the appearance of the Antichrist. Uh, the prophet, peace be upon him, again, he said in a sound hadith that the Antichrist will appear on the road between Iraq and Sham. Now, the thing is, is that there was no road between Iraq and Sham because after Sykes-Pico, there was a big dirt berm around these countries, which was pretty much the border. So how would there could there be a road between Iraq and Sham? Well, ISIS bulldozed the road between Iraq and Sham. So uh, I'm going to leave it at that. That's that's my that has been my approach uh, against ISIS using the Islamic sources. Now I'm going to kind of shift to uh, the Hindutva, who have of course risen recently with uh, Modi in government, um, and specifically how they've been using social media, WhatsApp groups in particular, Facebook. Uh, to, of course, uh, you know, uh, spread this hatred of Islam and Muslims. And this is, of course, aggravating the situation, not just in India, but also regarding Kashmir and Pakistan. Um, so I just wanted to drop that uh, out there as well. Uh, number three, just the far right. Um, you know, we've been seeing their antics lately, uh, especially with what's happening now with, uh, you know, their chief ideologue um, um, that's, that's uh, on his way out soon. Um, I wanted to mention, though, uh, how Boogaloo Boys in particular, the whole idea of, you know, targeting police officers and, and uh, targeting the state in that in that sense. And uh, really, in our definition of terrorism, these guys, you know, fit very well in that. Um, and this will continue to be an increasing threat. We saw some of the statistics, you know, um, the the 250 percent rise in the last five years. Uh, and again, that, you know, it's coinciding with uh, the, the leadership of a certain somebody uh, who I believe has um, really catapulted these groups, um, you know, in a way that that really nobody's nobody's yet done in recent time anyway. Um, lastly, just on nanotoxicity, just using that phrase to kind of um, uh, half mock them a little bit. But but we're actually having right now, as we speak, uh, the trial of Anik, uh, Alex, uh, Alec Manassian, uh, so-called incel attacker. And even the Canadian law enforcement and intelligence services have started to look at some of these groups uh, or this, you know, general group uh, as a, a new and rising public safety threat. So this is something that I wanted to kind of share as well. Uh, and this is just uh, just a little screenshot of, of some of the stuff that he, he used to put out. Uh, lastly, I'm just going to say, uh, you know, obviously with what's the psychology of quarantining and distancing, all the psychological issues that have come with that, the uncertainty, the anxiety. Uh, you know, extremist recruiters using this, especially as kids are online, uh, you know, a lot more now than before, even adults being online. So, you know, I am also a, a proud member of uh, Parents for Peace. Um, and we've been seeing a lot of this stuff. Uh, in fact, we've been seeing, uh, 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 you know, younger uh, people calling because of parents who have been kind of uh, have been seduced by QAnon and uh, QAnon conspiracy theories and so on. The rise of domestic situations that are in the home because people are in the home all the time. Uh, you know, we've been looking at some of the economic and political consequences, of course, not just terrorism, but what, with what's happening with COVID. Uh, technology demands. So there's a whole rabbit hole we can go down in terms of how terrorists are adapting, how they're learning, uh, and how they're still at it. And, you know, what's going to happen once we, quote unquote, get back to normal. And then finally, wars, you know, wars radicalize, right? They radicalize. Uh, you know, the entire societies, including the societies that are at war, you know, so if you imagine after 9-11, you can say that, you know, the U.S. got radicalized, you know, as a country, right? We can say like, you know, national security laws and, and these things radicalized people as well. So this is, uh, I just wanted to kind of put that out there. I'm going to stop sharing my screen here uh, and just basically say that, uh, you know, this is, this is where we're at and um, looking forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Mubin, for, for a detailed analysis and, and touching on a lot of the issues that were mentioned in the Global Terrorism Index. I'd now like to ask uh, Mia to take the floor. Uh, Mia, I hope your, uh, your mic is on, uh, but the floor is yours to make uh, opening comments. 
Well, thank you so much for including me in this conversation. I actually thought you knew I was Canadian. That's why you invited me. But uh, I'm a terrible Canadian. I've been down here for three decades. Um, so the, the report is excellent. And I, I, I'm going to give you some criticism. But let me start with the compliment, uh, which is very thorough, very detailed. And you know, again, I really like the use of data because it's very hard to argue with numbers. That said, part of the weakness of one part of the weakness of the report, which is not really a weakness, is that it didn't have a crystal ball and couldn't foresee into 2020 with, uh, as Mubin mentioned, the lockdowns and COVID. For example, in the UN, the Secretary General Antonio Guterres has basically said that as a result of COVID-19, they expect to see a massive uptick in terrorism. And so as I give my criticisms, uh, let me first start with the compliment that I, I definitely think this is a report that is making very important um, points. So the criticism. Uh, I think it's important to realize that as we're looking at 2019 to 2020, and there is this illusion that right-wing terrorism is you know, up 250%, part of the problem is that for a very long time, right-wing terrorism wasn't coded as terrorism. And so because of the reliance on things like GTD or even the Pyrus website, um, which is part of G GTD's research, we may in future want to cross tab the GTD data on terrorism with um, data on hate crimes. Because a lot of what would be right wing previously would have fallen under hate crimes. And I'll give you this as an example, as an anecdote. Uh, in the summer of 2019, I was giving a talk for the agency, one of the alphabetical organizations in the US. And I cited data that New America Foundation and the Anti-Defamation League had provided that uh, since 2006, that something like 76% of terrorist attacks were right wing and only 24% were jihadi. And yet, like the report and like so much of the media, there was such almost an exclusive focus on jihadi terrorism. And a number of FBI agents came up to me afterwards and they said, you know, we're curious, where does the data come from? And when I explained that to them, then they realized, oh, so a lot of what we've previously been calling bias crime or hate crimes is actually right-wing terrorism. Now, part of the reason for the way that's coded has to do with how it's prosecuted, as well as for the fact that in Canadian law, um, uh, 83.01 in its definition of terrorism, it doesn't really take into account some of these domestic groups. The other thing, and Mubi mentioned, I'm very pleased that he did, is the rise of uh, conspiracy groups. And I'm gonna just, just for a quick second, share my screen to show you something that I think um, it, I'm not sure if it's gonna work. Okay, so it did not work. So let's forget about that. Uh, that if you look at data, I'll look at the data so I can tell you about it. If you look at the data starting in October, 2017, all the way to June, 2020, Canada has been either the second or third most active QAnon generating country in the world. So this is why, even though we hear more about QAnon today uh, than we, let's say we did two years ago, it certainly has existed and Canada has played a very important role. Uh, the other area where we could expand reports in the future would include things like also will be mentioned with the Manosphere. I think the fact that there have been a number of incel attacks in Canada, including one that is currently being, uh, that will be tried for terrorism charges, we don't have his name because the perpetrator was 17 years old. So I think that um, as we move into the future, uh, we need to be very sensitive and read the room as far as not overly focusing on international jihadi attacks, looking more carefully at some of the domestic extremist groups, groups that are conspiracy theorists. And interestingly enough, there is, if you looked at a Venn diagram, there is an overlap between the people who believe in conspiracies, the people who subscribe to this QAnon nonsense where they're just for those of you who aren't following it. I have an article today um, on NBC.com explaining what QAnon is, but also talking about the fact that women are going to play a disproportionate role in QAnon. And so what QAnon believes is that there is a elite group, a cabal, if you will, of blood drinking, Democrats in this country, in the UK, they allege that it's the royal family. Um, across North America, celebrities, 
that are kidnapping, trafficking children and, and using their blood. And, and for those of you who find that ridiculous, there are a lot of people that believe in it, in, including um, so much so that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube had to deplatform many of these groups. It became so bad. But going through the last four years, Canada has been number two or number three most producing QAnon content. And a lot of the QAnon videos that I, I have to watch for my research, um, as a Canadian, I can hear the Canadian accent. So it is very uh, rampant throughout Canada. Um, the last thing that I would uh, also mention is that we need to consider with the terrorism index, uh, this issue of returnees. And it becomes particularly salient because at the end of September, finally, um, little Amira, who has been stuck in an IDP camp, uh, a Kurdish-run refugee camp, who's a Canadian child, I think she was found originally, she was five, because she might be by now seven, was finally repatriated. But according to the data that uh, I've collected from my research on children and terrorism, there are at least 28 more Canadian children that are in Al-Hol or Al-Roj. And so again, there can be some discussion about the issue of returnees, assessing whether they pose genuinely a terrorism threat, uh, issues of recidivism. And then the final two things to say, I think that the, um, the data for the terrorism index needs to have a category for women, not only because of large numbers of Canadian women who left Canada and migrated to ISIS and are now either trying to get back or have kids in the camps that are trying to get back, but also to be sensitive to the fact that um, terrorist groups tend to be innovative and they will attack what we least expect. And because we don't really tend to expect women, uh, very often the groups deliberately recruit women for that very reason. Uh, and and the, my last final point, and again, this might be very unpopular, but what I would say is uh, we need to also have as part of the index state terrorism. I think increasingly we are seeing uh, countries like China within uh, in Xinjiang, um, the repression of Uyghur, of Muslim Chinese groups, as well as Russia's repression of the Chechen groups. I think that increasingly uh, we will start to see more and more states that are abusing their power in order to suppress their populations. And they will very um, instrumentally designate groups that they find challenging to be terrorists. So I think that we need to have some sort of interaction between groups that are designated as terrorists, but maybe they're not, but in fact, they are challengers to uh, government rule. So thank you so much for uh, allowing me to criticize a fantastic report. And it's just more uh, how to improve it for the 2020 version. Thank you. Thank you, Mia, for those comments and, and for actually referencing quite a few cases related to Canada, both foreign policy and, and domestically regarding incels and, and the rise of QAnon. I'd now like to ask Michelle Shepard, um, a journalist who's traveled all over the world, has covered uh, conflicts in Africa, uh, if you could maybe offer some reflections on, on what you've heard here today. Um, there's actually so much that I want to follow up on uh, from what's been discussed, especially in Mia's uh, last comments there about state terrorism. But I'm also mindful of we only having about 15 minutes left, and I'd love to get to the, the, the question. So let me just keep it to one or two minutes. Um, just by way of background, I was at the Toronto Star for 20 years, and since 9-11, uh, covered issues of national security. And uh, I, I thought I had the greatest beat uh, around because while I was always based in Toronto, I was essentially a foreign correspondent, as, as Kyle said. And what that allowed me to do was to sort of take the pulse of what was happening here, uh, but then also be on the ground. So while I did cover terrorist groups, I also focused a lot on terrorism policy and what the, that impact would be. So as a, for instance, something like the, the US drone policy, um, you know, most reporters would be covering that from Washington. I was allowed to able to cover that from Washington, but then also go to the, you know, Yemeni town or the place in Pakistan where that, that drone hit and the reaction there. So I, I feel that lucky it gave me a really um, wide perspective on many issues of national security. Uh, in 2018, I left the SAR uh, to go independent to focus a bit more on filmmaking. Um, I'm doing some podcasts now as well. Uh, QAnon might be 
one that's coming up, Mia. Um, but I, uh, part of the reason I left um, is because we stopped doing foreign correspondence. Um, it's also because my husband also works there and we worry about newspapers these days. So one of us wanted to go independent, but um, you know, I think that's one thing to talk about if we have time during the questions is how media coverage has changed. And because of, you know, declining uh, revenue, certainly in print media, we've had to do more with less. Uh, and there's definitely been a decline in foreign coverage. And I think that's problematic. Um, I think lately we've just had the Trump Corona, you know, news vortex where there's not room for anything else. But um, even when that subsides, uh, you're just not going to get the same uh, coverage anymore. And and that's problematic both for governments that uh, suppress and also for, for terrorist groups that can act with impunity. Um, the other, I think, interesting trend is when I started covering this, uh, you know, I was I'm frankly, always amazed at who would talk with me. I think over the years, uh, I interviewed two or three um, people who were on the UN terrorism watch list. So some really uh, <laughs> radicals who agreed to sit down with me. Um, I think the danger has increased tenfold for journalists now. I think that's much, much harder to do uh, for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons, and we really saw this with ISIS, is that they don't need the media anymore. And I don't say that that we were there as propagandists in any way. Um, there's a huge ethical concern about how you cover terrorism and you had to do it carefully. But there was a bit of a symbiotic relationship. I mean, Osama bin Laden gave those initial interviews to uh, you know Peter Bergen and a couple others um, for a reason. Uh, but frankly, you know, ISIS just can go around that now. Um, they had such an important um, media machine that I know Mubin has done a lot of research on. And so I think that's interesting as well, um, that be, as sort of legacy or mainstream media, as it's sometimes called, uh, has fewer resources. A lot of these groups have better resources to re reach people directly. Let me stop it there so we can get to the Q&A. Um, thank you very much for thank inviting Thank you, today. Michelle. Um, and Michelle, I, I know we're supposed to end in about 15 minutes, but you have to leave exactly at 12. So maybe I'd like to ask you a question because um, you came at the end of it. Um, you, you talked about a couple of challenges at mainstream media, the, the, the funding is there, there aren't as many foreign correspondents. Um, so I imagine that there's more and more focus now to work with uh, local journalists. Um, what are some of the ethical issues of doing this and covering terrorism where they might be sent into harm's way? Uh, could you reflect on this based on your experience? Oh, it's such a, it's such a good point. I mean, I think that's a model that for a long time, uh, many outlets have been looking at and it's to, you know, empower local journalists because quite frankly, most foreign correspondents who go into the field, you rely on local journalists. Sometimes they would be called fixers, but you really rely on people on the ground to help you uh, through the work. But as you said, it's an ethical concern. And it, I always definitely felt that with those that I worked with, knowing that I would then leave and come back to safety or I had, you know, an organization behind me, but the people you work with there, don't have that. So I think we need to have some sort of official setup that isn't there uh, yet, but I know discussions are ongoing, that you can provide the same security for in some fashion, some way to support those who are on the ground and yet partner with um, perhaps more experienced journalists or journalists here to, to do some sort of co-writing. I think that's going to be the future of, of journalism in, in some way. And um, there's there's so many different hurdles of how you get around it. But I think I think we need to make those partnerships. Thank you, uh, Michelle. Um, one question that, that I would like to ask the panel, and, and not everyone has to answer it, but one thing that struck out at me that in Michael's presentation was really seeing the shift towards Africa of, of state actors, you know, from the Sahel, Mali, West Africa, and, and particularly now also it's been the news Mozambique that has um, a kind of an ISIS affiliate there that's recently, uh, I think, decapitated 50 people in, in the in, in a north part of the country. What does this mean for Africa? Because, um, you know, we have weak governments there, corruption. How serious is this going to get? And, and what does that mean for Canadians? Should we be trying to support the UN? Should we be um, helping governments. What does this mean for Africa and, and Canada's relationship with Africa and, and protecting human rights? Yes, Mina. 
one of the things that we saw beginning in 2012, 2013, is that uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, sort of the main core of Al-Qaeda, began divvying up different groups and vying for these groups. And I'll give you an example. Boko Haram was originally an Al-Qaeda group, and then it pledged allegiance to ISIS. And so what one of the reasons we're seeing um, literally an explosion of violence in Africa, and Africa prior to, let's say, recent uh, conflicts, had lower levels of terrorism. Okay, so there was maybe al-Shabaab, but for the most part, a lot of the arguments that had been made that there was a connection between poverty and terrorism tended to be challenged when you looked at Africa because you said, well, okay, here's the poorest continent and yet we see far less terrorism. But what was happening is that once you had a proliferation of groups and a competition, what you tend to then see, and I, and I said this back all the way in 2005 in my first book on suicide terrorism, Dying to Kill, was that the competition would fuel um, an escalation of violence between the groups. And so even in Nigeria, there are a number of groups that they compete with each other for press and attention for recruits. And the thing that becomes very dangerous is that you have an escalating security and violent dilemma that occurs as a result of this kind of competition. The other thing is that a lot of what we're seeing in Africa is a bit of a backlash against French, sort of the lingering vestiges of colonialism. And the last part is that one of the ways to resolve it perhaps is that there's been a lot of Chinese investment in Africa. And so the groups might be competing for control of areas because they foresee there's financially going to be Chinese investment and more opportunities. But yeah, the situation in Africa has completely metastasized. It's no longer, you know, just uh, Yemen or even Nigeria, but there's a spillover effect across all of the different Sahel countries. Thank you. Um, Michelle or Mubin, would you like to make any comments about Africa and, and the rise of terrorism there? As, or, or, or should I move to another question? I don't mind deferring to Michelle since she's actually been over there. So I'll, I'll, yeah. um, I mean, I would say, I think the only country that I specialized in um, was Somalia. And uh, I was just back there filming last year for a film I'm working on. And it's, you know, every time, and I say Somalia, but really I only ever went to Mogadishu. And every time I go there, it's, it's a, you have to relearn what's happening again. Uh, you know, the biggest struggle there has always been the, the uh, corruption and within the government. And, uh, they just work hand in hand. Um, this isn't a, um, a finding, but but something that I will be watching is, as as probably most of these viewers know, the U.S. troops that are there are being withdrawn now, uh, and I don't I don't know what impact that will have. My my understanding was that it was always a temporary position, anyway. Um, and what it did create, and I did see this, was a bit of a two tier system, which was problematic. So the forces that were incredibly trained by the U.S. forces there were getting West. If they weren't getting Western dollars, they definitely came under one infrastructure, which then uh, paled in when when you looked at the uh, the local forces where there was corruption and sometimes difficulty getting a paycheck. It really created this dangerous two tier system. Uh, I don't know how. I don't know. If, the U.S. troops leaving that will make that um, any easier or worse, but definitely that'll be the biggest change there. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Mubin, I, I I would like to ask you a question. Um, um, you 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 specialize on kind of um, ISIS, Al Qaeda extremists, but you also talked about India, the rise of uh, Hindu nationalism. Uh, we we've seen a, an issue of. Buddhist nationalism in Myanmar targeting uh, the Rohingya. And you also mentioned um, the QAnon and the, the far right movement. Um, what, in your view, like, are we seeing the far right and other groups feed off of, of different types of violence? Like, are, is ISIS violence fueling far right violence? Is there any kind of connection between the groups? I'm wondering if you could comment on that. I, I do believe there is a connection between them. I mean, you see. Uh, you know, the really it's because of ISIS terrorism, or I would say ISIS terrorism is one big reason why we we saw the rise of far right extremism. It was in response to 
what they saw as this uh you know war uh, you know war by islam you know that because that's how they phrase these things uh, on the west and then of course it it you know the because of the war in Syria and I mean Bashar al-Assad being the primary cause uh, of refugees being, you know, uh, going over to the EU, there was a weaponization of the refugees. And so the far right, of course, picked up on that as well and fed off of that. So there, there is a uh, almost like a symbiotic union uh, in which a lot of these groups exist, especially far right and, uh, and, and like ISIS types. Uh, they're, they're two peas in the same pot. Uh, but again, like, uh, thanks for you know reminding us of hindutva and others they're also picking up on these things any excuse they can use uh and and the worst thing is that they have state backing that's that's one of the reasons why i think we're seeing especially in uh, myanmar and india thank you uh Mubin. um mia would you like to comment on this or should i move to the next question very briefly Certainly the right wing has observed some of the tactics that ISIS used and they have been implementing them. And I'll give you three different areas. The first has been, and this is something Michael mentioned in the report, has been the use of social media. ISIS engaged in social media in ways that no group beforehand had ever done. And of course, it was a function of many of these platforms emerging as ISIS was expanding. And so the use of things like encrypted platforms and even the dark web is something that the right wing is doing now that ISIS really uh, was a trailblazer. The other area of uh, commonality that I found is the ways in which they've been radicalizing youth and they've been using uh, targeted messaging uh, and also using platforms, gaming platforms. And Mubin mentioned this in his presentation when he showed some of the gifts and the memes that ISIS used with Call of Duty. And so if you look at uh, the Boogaloo that he mentioned, or some of these extreme right groups, or even incels, you see the use of social media in ways that really only compares to ISIS. So a lot of the lessons that could be learned and gleaned from ISIS's success have been implemented on the far right. And the last issue, and again, I apologize for reiterating myself, has been the, the role of women. For the longest time, the far right women were barely observable because they were behind the scenes. And a lot of right-wing ideology was that their main purpose was to marry and give birth you know, to the white race, which is very much in line with Aryan ideology from Hitler. And so what we're seeing now is, like with ISIS, a lot of more women that are recruiting, they're online disseminating the propaganda. And for groups like QAnon, they are actually taking to the streets uh, whether they are attacking the Canadian prime minister or a Canadian woman who was captured with ricin uh, with her intent to attack Donald Trump, uh, we are seeing the right wing almost parallel mirror images. And of course, they also, they hate Jewish people, they hate gay people, um, they hate people who are from their own faith that don't believe in them. And so a lot of this sort of internal policing is similar to ISIS. Thank you. Um very much, Mia. Michelle, I know you have to go in a minute, but I'd like to ask one question. Um, if a young journalism student in Canada came to you and said, I want to make a career reporting on, on terrorism, what would you tell them? To go to law school and uh, <laughs> journalism. Uh, no, I, I encourage them. I mean, I think we don't have journalists specializing in, um, in national security uh, issues as much anymore. I think, uh, I think the problem has been, and some of the speakers have said this, is that it's been the focus has been too narrow. Uh, whereas it's it's a it's an um, enormous umbrella. There's so much to cover, um, and I would really, you know, I encourage them to start locally. Just start looking at what's happening at home. I mean, that's what I started at, um, and then from there become a foreign correspondent. I always I always caution against going running out into the field. I, I cringe when I used to see sort of young, uh, unsupported freelancers uh, doing dangerous things. So get some work here first and then and then move on from there. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for joining us. And, and we've seen quite a few freelance journalists go missing in Syria. Um, uh, so I think you're absolutely right. There's a responsibility of media and individuals not to go into side of danger. Um, we're going to wrap up in, in a few minutes. I'd like to ask Michael a question. Um, Michael, there, um, um, Mia mentioned there's some things you can consider to improve the report. I know we're always trying to improve the report. Um, there's always a way to increase looking at the digital space. But I'm wondering from your perspective, um, 
one person also asked a question, despite the, the number of incidents and deaths, how about measuring other impacts? For example, like displacement. We know in uh, West Africa, while Boko Haram has been responsible for killing, um, uh, you know, six, 7,000 people this year, we also have seen, you know, enormous numbers of people that have been displaced, one and a half million people creating a humanitarian emergency. Is that something that should be uh, perhaps in the future looked at as well or, or, or no? What, what is your view on that? So yes, I definitely think it should. Um, so we do track um, uh, refugees and internally displaced people as, as one of the indicators for the Global Peace Index. Um, but what we haven't done in this year's issue is actually uh, make that sort of cross-referencing with, with levels of, of terrorism. So so yes, I de definitely think that there's a, a lot of potential there and actually that's that's actually a recommendation uh, uh, I'd, I'd like I'd like to make, and you know, every year we try and kind of sort of uh, try and build this out. And actually, the feedback that we get from from launching the report um, is is the main driver for improvements the the following uh, year. Um, and yeah, just just to touch uh, very briefly on 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 Mia's on on the variety of, of Mia's comments um, uh, very quickly with regards to the far right um, element. Yes, it is it is a very grey. Um, area uh, for sure, and we do take um, we do take um, GTD data um, for this, uh, but we do take a variety of different groups and a variety of, of individuals. There's not a sole classification of, of far right. Um, in fact, there is a classification of far right, but we actually widen that to incorporate other elements more broadly considered as far right. Granted, that element of it is is somewhat uh, subjective, and that's always going to be sort of a, a bit of a gray uh, area. Uh, there, we, we do sort of other forms of, of cross-referencing with, with data, for example, all of the shifts in sub-Saharan Africa, specifically regarding Boko Haram and, and, and you know, pledging allegiance to ISIS, and then the subsequent confusion as to, okay, well, who is responsible for these individual attacks? Um, that is another area where we've, we've kind of sort of cross-referenced data to, to try and, and make sure that we provide the most accurate reporting uh, possible. And one slide that I didn't share was related to uh, mass shootings in the, in the United States and their posterior designation as, as terrorist uh, incidents as well. And we've seen that increase. Um, so yeah, there's there's definitely sort of a, a shift both in terms of sort of uh, groups and even even in many ways the way in which sort of terrorism is, is defined or accepted or or, or talked about. Um, and then actually, I'd just like to kind of sort of take the the, the opportunity, um, uh, uh, perhaps as a closing remark. Uh, and Mia sort of talks about having a crystal, a crystal ball. Uh, no, absolutely not. We, we don't have a crystal ball. In fact, what we hope is to provide um, the, the, the information so that people who do have access to it, or at least have more sort of uh, experience than we do, can kind of sort of make those those um, projections. But, you know, if we were to have that crystal ball, what we see broadly is that we see sort of all, all, all kinds of violence um, are, are, are down. Now, this is kind of sort of pre-COVID. Pre, pre, uh, we generally expect that to, to, to continue being being um, uh, uh, down, uh, a COVID sort of uh, particular, uh, perhaps, you know, being able to sort of reduce uh, terrorism in, in, in urban areas, but it not necessarily having uh, any particular impact in, in sort of more rural areas. So sub-Saharan Africa, once again, is, is, uh, remains uh, a large amount of concern. And one of the things that, that, that I did want to highlight in terms of what our concerns would be looking forward is the fact that COVID in particular means that um, a variety of, of countries, including the US, including Canada, are in all likelihood going to have to sort of tighten their belts to be able to, to respond to the crisis at home, and therefore investment in things like counterterrorism uh, efforts, uh, UN peacekeeping operations, humanitarian aid, development aid, is going to significantly reduce over time. So we do think that that's a concern, and we do think that that could lead uh, to, to an increase in terrorism over time um, that is going to sort of run counter, if you will, to the decreases in terrorism that we're seeing in this decrease in, in global conflict as well. Thank you, Michael. So with this, I maybe would like to ask Mubin um, and Mia, you have 45 seconds. What closing statement or what, what issue that you think that people watching should follow going into 2020? Uh, I'll just I'll jump on quickly because like, we can leave the best for last, Mia. Uh, I think uh, we, we need to pay attention to what's happening in Africa. I, I know I kind of didn't answer that question, but I think that is the, that's going to be the new front. That will be the new front uh, for the reasons that everyone has been mentioning. Um, and uh, really, that's, uh, that is that is number one thing. And the second one is, of course, the far right. Uh, and especially with the post-Trump uh, environment, uh, just looking at things domestically as to how they're going to kind of take off. So. Uh, with that, I'll pass it over to Mia. 
I want to urge us to be very cognizant and careful with regard to, uh, as a result of the U.S. election and this ridiculousness that's going on now, it is guaranteed that uh, once Joe Biden does take office in January, we are going to see a reaction on the far right in much the same way that Michael's data showed a reaction to the election of Barack Obama. And I want to recommend two books by two of my friends, but they're also very good books. Cynthia Miller Idris's book, Hate in the Homeland, and Ari Perliger's book, American Zealots. Uh, these are brand new books. They are fantastic. They're really well written. And if people want to understand about the right wing, I would definitely recommend you read those. Thank you very much, Mia. So I just like to take this this chance. I want to uh, thank um, uh, Mubin, Michelle, and Mia. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. It's it's really important. I think Canadians have learned a lot today, and and will continue to look at these videos as we put them out there. I want to thank Michael for joining us, and just put a um, a thank you to the Institute for Economics and Peace for approaching Migs to ask us to partner on this. Um, we're happy to collaborate with you, and I want to thank everyone for watching. Thank you very much. <laughs>